Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Startup Nightmares. Startup Nightmares is a podcast that aims to inspire those who work in the startup world to do the best work they can the best way possible while dodging some bullets doing so. Let's just be a bit more human here. All of these people started needing stuff from me. Don't feel like you're on your own because you're, you're never on your own. But I'm paying this person a good wage. Why isn't that enough? And that doesn't make me special. What makes me special is my deeper story. People need a sense of purpose to feel motivated in their job. Wake up at five in the morning and like go to the gym for an hour. Like, what the fuck is that? You're sitting at your desk crying and you're like, what happened? I had no idea how to monetize anything. I was like, ah, everybody gets a title. You get a title, you get a title. Either pay me or I will sue you. All of our guests have been to the dark side of the innovation ecosystem and came back to tell their tale. You can use this. This is how you get there. It is not a secret anymore. My name is Tal Shmueli, and I will be your host. Felix, good morning. Good morning, Tal. Thanks for coming on to the show. Thanks for inviting me. We haven't seen each other in about two years, I would say. Yes. Before we get cracking, um, not everyone has the same history as we have. I'd like you to start by telling us who you are, what do you do, and why do you do it? So I'm Felix Becker. I am originally from Argentina. Left my country when I was about 30 to study abroad. I went to do an MBA in France because I wanted to live in Europe. And at the time, I was doing management consultancy, and I thought I wanted to be a consultant forever. Like, that's what I dreamed about it. I said, if I want to be a consultant, let's go to the one of the big ones in one big city in, in the world. And I was super passionate of the diversity that Europe has. So that's why I targeted what I thought at the time was the best kind of like consulting uh, strategy, uh, career I could get in an MBA. So I targeted INSEAD. I was lucky to get, lucky to get accepted. INSEAD has a one-year program, it's an MBA in Europe, which is not very common in Argentina. Most of the Argentinian community who studies abroad goes to the US. So everyone was looking at me like, why are you going to Europe? But I still wanted to live in Europe. So I, I went with that, uh, did this MBA. I got into Bain, which is one, one consultancy that I really appreciated and uh, in their office in London. I studied there. I did three years of consultancy and then moved to LinkedIn where we happily met. Then I went into another uh, company called PipeRive, which is a tech uh, SaaS company. And now I'm in another company called Mural, which is another SaaS tool. That's kind of like a give or take. So I've been in London for eight plus years in Europe, almost almost nine, nine and a half, yes. So there's plenty of things that want to, in the words of Jeff Winner, double click on. Uh, the work as a consultancy, the transition into LinkedIn and startups, these are some of the themes uh, we'd want we'd to cover. Was this your first management role with LinkedIn? Yeah, I, I was managing small teams at Bain, what they call a case team leader, which is when these projects are um, happening, Bain has this role where there's a team, uh, of course, there's a team in a project, very small teams of three, four, five people. And there's someone managing the team of analysts or the more junior people. This is the case team leader. And there's someone like managing the relationship with the, with, the, with the client, the manager or the partner. 
So I was managing in small groups uh, for like six to nine months before moving to LinkedIn. But LinkedIn was the first one where I actually had a full team uh, under my responsibility. Yes. So new role, new company, new country. Yeah. That's a lot to take in. Yeah, they normally recommend you to do one thing at a time, one degree of freedom. But uh, I didn't I didn't take that advice very literally. It was a lot to take on. Luckily, um, LinkedIn has a very good culture, and you know this. And it helped me a lot to feel at home early on. The level of stress I was feeling at uh, Bain and deliverables every day or whatever. Like at, at Bain, I, I sent an email to my manager every night with like the bullet points. Uh, basically, it's all in bullet points in consulting. <laughs> like you talk in bullet points, you send emails in bullet points. I think bullet points maybe were created by a McKinsey or something. <laughs> so uh, at the end of the day, I sent a, kind of like a recap. Hey, this is what we learned today. The client said, blah, blah, blah. Next steps for tomorrow, ABC. That was my like, the last thing I did before I closed my laptop at midnight or whatever at, in consulting. When I go into LinkedIn, I speak to my then manager and say, okay, should I... What's kind of like the output you would expect on a day-to-day basis? Do you want like a daily email with the bullets? And so she was like, what? <laughs> what email? <laughs> like, I- I'm sitting there. What do you mean? <laughs> like, why an email? And uh, and then I said, okay, like a weekly email? It's like, okay, if it helps you, do it. But I don't care. I was like, oh, this is different. So uh, a lot of learning, a lot of like becoming a bit more nimble on what was actually my job. Like, what did I have to do? Just manage people? Like, I had a team of eight or so. Is it just, like, keep them happy and see what they're up to, solve their issues, be an, a mentor? And what, what is it? Like, what do I have to do? <laughs> so that's the first month I was telling you. Like, what exactly do I need to do here? Is it just make sure these eight people are happy, they're growing, they're delivering what they need to deliver on versus these specs? Or... Do I need to do something else? I started to do projects. I started to do things on the side because I thought that that was my way of proving impact. Not just managing people, just manage. for me, managing was like, okay, yeah, I manage them, but give me something to me, like something of my own. So that was my first kind of like couple of months at LinkedIn. It's a, like, as a, as a hustler, you do work on the business and in the business, and all of a sudden you're like, yeah, you just work on the business. Yeah. You don't have to go on client calls. You exactly. don't have to go into the campaign manager to tweak stuff. You don't have to go back to the deal desk and fight with them. Yeah, just make sure that these folks are looked after. Yeah, I also like within a team, you always have a group of people who are super happy, super driven, ambitious. They know what they're doing and they they want to grow and whatever. You have a group of like maybe in the middle who are like, yeah, it's okay. It's a job, whatever. And then you always have a longer tail of this is not for me. I hate my role. Like, why did I sign up for this? Or lunch here is crap and I need my holidays. And so people call it the millennials or whatever. I, I don't care what like generation you're in. But I had a lot, a lot like when I inherited this team at the beginning, half of the team pretty much was unhappy with their role. So my role started to be like understanding what they wanted to do. If this was not the role for them, maybe help them find their next play in LinkedIn's world. Or like, I don't know, work with them to see what's what's the best possible way. So that was also different different to what was I used to. At Bain, as I told you before, like these people are super driven and ambitious. They sign up for something, they work very hard. And they never ever, like, if they want to leave, there is an issue. Like, HR takes care of that. Like, the manager never has to coach someone out of the business. That barely happens. If And I never heard that. But it's kind of like they outsource or I don't know if it happens at all. But the managers are just focused on the clients and delivering the work. Maybe you have mentors and mentees. Yes, that could work. But on a day-to-day basis... There's very little time in consulting to talk about kind of like your your maybe this is not the right role for you because you signed up for it you know what you're signing up for and you go all in yeah so it's un, unlikely you're one month in or one year in and say I don't like the lunch yeah you know what I mean when I got the job with LinkedIn 
I thought I'll be there forever. I mean, they had the dream job, great culture, great team, super talented folks. Between okay to good money, depending on how you did, <laughs> how was your quarter. But very quickly, there's like kinks in the armor. And some people, you know, I don't like the lunch. I can't believe they've taken our plastic bottles away. Now I have to go to the, to the kitchenette to pour myself a glass of water. Can't take the... And then sometimes it's bigger. Sometimes it's like, I want to progress faster. I want to, I want to earn a little bit more money. It seems like nothing is ever enough. Yeah. Is that something you saw more of in LinkedIn versus Bain? No, I think like even like I suffer from that as well. Like you're, you're always looking for your next thing and see like what's, what's your career path looking like. Well, I guess we're all in like trying to be as best as we can. And sometimes you question yourself, do I have the title I should have? Shouldn't I be like a senior manager and not a manager? <laughs> I want to be a director. <laughs> it's like, what does that mean? Like, why? Why do we push ourselves so hard or so? Like, I think even like myself, now I'm, I'm called a VP of operations. Is that better a director of operations or head of operations or a COO? Like, what, what's the difference? So I'm now trying, although it's not easy, to like focus on the story. Like, what did you do at this company? What, what were the things? What are the bullets point? The bullet points you're going to write in your CV after you leave this job? What are those things? And that's I think much more for me meaningful than if it is a senior or not a senior manager uh, in my title. Before we move on, I just want to spend a few more minutes on being a middle management in a company like LinkedIn. You have a lot of responsibility because it's the well-being of some of the you know, high-performing, pretty demanding people. You have to catch up. You have to, uh, yeah. They have to respect you. Yes. Uh, even though you came in as a manager, you've never done their role before. Exactly. So you have to get them to respect you. What did you feel and you, your, your direct uh, respect and kind of um, appreciation? I think I was always uh, very transparent with them. So um, I told them, look, I don't know what you do. Like, I don't know your role. Uh, I want to learn. Show me. I did a few shallowing sessions, to your point. Maybe not as much as I should have, but I was trying to understand the role. Oh, okay. So that's a CPC. And what's a CPM? Oh, I get it. Okay. So this campaign is more uh, like producing more value for us than this one. Oh, okay. Great. I get it. <laughs> it took me a I, I had never done advertising before going into managing a team of people who are delivering value to advertisers, right? So I didn't work with agencies or, or nothing. So at the beginning, it was like very much, you know what? I want to learn. And the ones more like maybe more senior or more uh, back to my energy point, the more empathetic of my team members were the ones who are, you know what? This guy can, maybe he doesn't know a thing about how to run a marketing campaign or marketing dollars, but he can help us in another way. He can be structured with our planning. He can be someone who uh, helps me progress my career or make better presentations to my clients or whatever. So it took me a bit of time, but I think by being honest uh, was the first thing I did. And the ones who appreciated, I think, were the ones that we got along more with. So I, I'm quite transparent, as you can see. Like I, I will be always like telling you what what I'm lacking, and I think people appreciate that. It's a, it comes across. It comes across in your writing. It came across in your management style. I'm wondering if you ever had to pay a cost for them because transparency in that regard also means listen, guys. I'm a I'm a manager in this company. They call the shots in our wiggle room. Your promotion, your raise, the priorities, the size of your of your of your book. You're limited in what you can give them back. Yeah. True, um, at the beginning especially, but if you have clear kind of like um, path and a clear measure of the impact you can you can bring, so then the leadership starts to look at you for advice, right? If you're telling like you know you know what this guy is driving a lot of revenue because he's doing X Y and Z different than all the others, so his clients are happier and therefore spending more. And if the manager wasn't there bringing that up, the leadership of the company would have seen that. So let's recognize that person and make sure that person is kind of like 
elevated and that learning gets spread around the company. So we're all doing what he does best. So I guess like the job as a manager of of course is kind of managing the day to day, but it's also kind of like unpicking what is working in your team, elevating that to leadership and say, okay, this guy in the Netherlands is amazing. He's doing X, Y, and Z. Show the other guy in Germany how like to run 120 campaigns at the time because he's stretched, he's not. So yeah. what's the learning there? So if if you're able to detect insights and bring them to the table, you started to be seen as someone trustworthy and someone who's adding value rather than just having one-on-ones and with your team, right? So that's, I think, when you start to earn the respect of the leadership and then your team starts to see that the work they do gets recognized and therefore they can trust their manager as well. So one of the biggest cards you can play as a manager, even if you're very limited in, in the changes you can, uh, you can do, is recognition. Recognition for the right things, right? So what I don't like is managers just pushing for their teams because, oh, my team needs a raise, they're very unhappy and let's give them a 10% increase. Yes. Okay. Why? Like, tell me why. What are they doing? What are they doing differently? Why, why do they deserve this and not? Like, if the manager is able to think like the owner and of the business, the leadership will see that and will appreciate that kind of like level of kind of like ownership, right? What I see sometimes in junior managers is the fact that they they just need to fight for their team. That's what they meant to be doing. And as a man, as a manager myself, sometimes I actually said, "No, she doesn't deserve a break, or she he doesn't deserve a raise, or maybe he's not that good for that role." So I'll find a way for him. Maybe he needs to leave, and and that's okay. But it's not fighting for all all your team because you're meant to be fighting. It's just I'm picking what works, saying what doesn't work, and what's your plan to solve that. That's honesty on a one level up. <laughs> Well, I guess like you, you need to think of your team as this is like, again, uh, going back to football, this is my national team of 11, right? You know, in football, it's 11 people or soccer for Americans. Like, who do I want to have here as my number five, my number 10, my goalkeeper, right? If you see that the goalkeeper is not very well, like you need to be talking to your board of directors and say like, look, we need a new goalkeeper because this person is not delivering. But you don't say like all the team needs to fly in first class next next time we go to the US because they need to. No, it doesn't really work like that. Did you ever come across situations in which over-motivation worked against your team? I, w- I wouldn't say so. Um, over-motivation, I didn't see it as, uh, as a negative thing. Maybe what could happen is that someone works very hard on something that is not really you're not in line with them in how much value that that is adding, right? And it could be up to opinions, I get that. But imagine someone internally trying to... I had occasions where someone was very focused on internal programs and internal marketing initiatives. So how internally we could do something. Whereas their clients were suffering and the level of attention, right? So it was like, okay, you're motivated on something that is internal for the company to become better, which... I, I see value of that, but I only want you to do that if your core is being done right, right? Your core is a customer-facing role. Your customers need to be happy. They need to be very much like overly wowed on what we're delivering. Once you get that right, you get to do special projects internally. And sometimes some people who are not maybe in the right role, to my point earlier, only want to do the special projects. I only want to do, I don't know, education classes for uh, agencies who are don't know anything about LinkedIn. I get that. It's important. But you have a patch. You have a book of business you need to take care of first. So I wouldn't call it over-motivation. I would call it motivation on the things that probably didn't matter as much to the business. Yeah. What advice would you give um, people who are, in the earlier stages of the work, first day, you know, three to five years, they wanna, they wanna, they wanna explode. They wanna show. They wanna get promoted every year, and they're working for for big vessels that move a little slower. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, for me, get the core 
right and nail it. Like, um, what is your task? It's customer facing. Okay, make sure your customers absolutely love working with you. If it is, uh, I don't know, whatever it is, you're in a deal desk and you need to handle tickets that come, okay, crush it. If you're in customer support, make sure customers like rate you over the, like whatever you need to do as your core, like work, work your your ass off for that and make sure you're absolutely crushing your core. And everything else, whatever is a distraction, wait. Like don't start from fancy projects early on because you got hired for something and you need to do that job really, really well for for you to be considered to take the next role. What would you say about the um, personal brand for young employees? So fine, they, they're nailing their core right. How much does the extracurricular activity play a role uh, when, when making a decision on promotion and progression? I would say try to th- know or think what is the thorn that your boss has in their in their feet right what what is bugging your boss what is what's the issue that is top of mind for him or her and therefore leadership right is it we're not growing fast enough is it uh, we have too many costs or is it our TNE budget is gone or what, what is it and with that, have like a solution-oriented approach and say, hey, I, I know that the issue we're having right now in this quarter is that we're not growing a lot. I worked over the, like last night with a couple of ideas. I spoke to a few team members. I think there are two or three things we could pilot. What do you think? If you want me, I can progress further, but I just wanted to share like an initial thought. Because as a manager, you get a lot of like, random stuff and random noise that is to not say it in another word so to avoid the I'm, I'm laughing because I probably flooded my managers yeah. <laughs> so much of those things but you want people to solve your problems right you you want to get rid of like emails that you have in your inbox or like wherever you're writing your to-dos you want to cross them out you want stuff to get out of your plate if you have someone in your team that is coming with ideas on how to cross out those things in your list, that's gold, right? So if someone says, we're not growing enough, so I have these three ideas, or we can test this pilot, or I talk to this customer who actually are thinking about an annual deal with us because of it, that's, that's amazing. So someone who can think ahead of the game, nailing the core always, but if they're also able to solve uh, the leadership problems in a solution-oriented approach, that's, I think, uh, takes you to the outstanding category. That's amazing to hear. So nailing the core, making sure you do the simple stuff well, don't skip stages. Like leading, when I gave the task of leading team meetings to some of my directs, they're like, why, why were four people here? You're obviously the manager. Like, yeah. why do I need to do that? They didn't see sometimes the value of being able to do that. And they didn't recognize this as an opportunity to put themselves forward as managers. Like I drew so much comfort and confidence from seeing one of them at the head of the table, running the show, keeping the agenda, keeping the times, holding others accountable. It's a 30 minute instance that can tell you a lot about a person's character and potential. So highly advisable. And then, like you said, identify what's important to your manager. Of yeah. course, there's what you need to do to not get fired. Fair enough. That's the core. And there's what does your manager need to do to get ahead? Is that a legitimate question in a one-to-one saying, like, Felix, um, I have my book. I'm pretty much on top of it. The customers are all being taken care of. How can I be of further, further help? Yeah. I think, like, asking the question, like, what's top of mind for you? What's top of mind for your managers? Like, what what is being discussed at the leadership level What's the biggest issue they see in the in the business today? I think that's fair. And again, going back to my transparency, I've been always quite transparent with the team and say, like, look, we're considering moving this to that. Of course, there's confidential stuff, but whenever I could share um, ideas, thoughts, I, I wanted the buy-in early on from my team. Not only the buy-in, but also the input. As you say, I don't know enough of what is a day-to-day. And if we have this idea of, I don't know, deprecating this product line or launching a new type of motion, whatever. And I need some validation, at least from my team and then from our customers. So my team was a very good source of 
inspiration or like testing. So I would have the conversation. I would ask the question to a manager, what's top of mind for you? How can I help you? So you wouldn't consider it intrusive? Uh... Not at all. No, I would appreciate it. Last question on that, uh, because it's a huge part, not of just uh, our roles as managers and da-da-da-da-da, but of the workforce, and that's employee retention. Yeah. So we have the average tenure is 18 to 24 months, 24 months if you're lucky. You know, first day of induction with LinkedIn, they say, you're bound to leave eventually. Let's make our time together worthwhile for both uh, both sides. Did you ever have an employee that you loved but couldn't retain within the constraints of your role? Yeah. Um, that happens um, and they left for better opportunities or personal reasons or their partner went back to Paris or um, yes, I had uh, uh, several examples. And did you ever have the examples where good employees that you really loved working with found themselves uh, um, coming to you with an opportunity saying, listen, Felix, uh, I love you. I love the team, but I've got this opportunity. I have to, uh, I have to pursue it. And you knew it was the wrong decision to make for them? because they were this close for a promotion, because uh, you know something about that company that they don't, or that role? No, uh, not because of promotion or like they were close to getting a raise or nothing like that. I sometimes question like their own kind of like assessment of their own capabilities versus, so example, I feel like I want to move to this company because I want to be a senior manager here or, or whatever and run uh, I don't know, a customer success organization. I say, okay, um, are you ready for that? Why do you want to do that? And sometimes I maybe disagreed with the decisions they, they took. But at the end of the day, if they are, maybe I was wrong, of course, but also like sometimes you need to hit your own wall to, to learn it. So go ahead and do it. One of the things we can talk about later is I, I, I value much more the journey than the end result, of course. And if a startup doesn't work, but you were there for nine months or two years or whatever, I'm sure you left that startup better than you would have been if you stayed in your previous role. So I would encourage people to just do the experience. If they feel like it, go. I would never try to kind of like hold them back. So let's move on to talking about uh, hitting walls. The startup world is uh, is all about hitting walls. Sometimes you break them, sometimes you climb over them, sometimes the wall collapses on your head. At some point, even though you've done, uh, you've progressed within LinkedIn, you're super, super appreciated, you decided to move on. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about that transition. So I was with LinkedIn for uh, three years and uh, I was really enjoying my time there. Like I was um, getting to a point where like I had an amazing relationship with my manager. She became a very strong mentor to me coaching me, making me step up my role, become a leader. I have an amazing relationship with the sales leader, which was like my partner in crime. We became friends. I went on the weekends to, to his place. And so I was in a, and I had built a team and I was starting to build managers underneath me who were also people that I hired with the idea of making them managers. And that was already happening. I went a bit of like crazy and hired people who were maybe not the, the perfect type of account managers and those who are proving to be very successful. I was, I think I was pretty in a, in a very good spot. But at some point I started to be, I became a bit bored, to be honest. Like my job was uh, very, like, honestly, I was having fun. And uh, I had an amazing team. I got, got along with my team very well. But I got bored of not having to solve major problems, which I like doing. Like problem solving for me in the face in in the face of a consultant or in the face of a startup, problem solving for me is pretty big, right? Going back to the impact point. So at some point I became a bit bored and um I started to look around. I couldn't find anything that was worthwhile leaving LinkedIn. Then I saw someone at LinkedIn leaving to become the CRO of a startup. And she, I had worked with her very briefly over a few projects. And she was another type of leader, very well established in what she did. And she was like, look, I'm going to do this CRO role for this startup that is booming. I need someone to be my right-hand person and run the numbers of the business, uh, run the planning, good uh, all the stuff that I really liked. 
And that was like a bet, um, but I decided to take it. And uh, it was not easy. I was I was getting along ex- like very well with everyone at LinkedIn. Um, I had won a small award. I had like everything was like perfect. Uh, I don't know, but I, I just took, took the chance. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Yeah, you took a you took a chance. It sounds like people want their entire life to be exactly where you were when you left. Yeah. So then you joined. Piper. I'm, I'm happy. Uh, I'm happy I did it. Like, don't get me wrong. Uh, but it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. I was in my comfort zone. Uh, I had the recognition internally as a manager and as a team member or like my peers. I, I got along. But I said like, okay, off to a new challenge. And I went to PipeDrive, which is a CRM that I didn't know about before and was undergoing like a leadership transformation. I decided to join their newly created London office. So it was a new challenge as well. Of When I joined LinkedIn, it was already like, I don't know, 6,000 people or so. When I joined PipeDrive, it was like 200 and something or 300. And in London, like they were, I was like the second or third employee in London. So... Completely different story. We were in a co-working space all around the table, right? I felt like more like this is kind of like what I like doing. It's a bit of a hassle. You get to see the impact. You feel important. Probably a, a straight line to one of the executives or the founders. Yeah. It sounds like a 200 people startup that's already setting up their international locations is people who know what they're doing. Probably some PR going on. There's some positive momentum, hiring for C-suites. I could see the win for you. You know, you're coming in as a VP, like reporting to the to the to the decision makers, da 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 da. What is it like to work for a 200 people startup? Yeah, it's very different, of course, than a 6,000 uh, public company uh, for sure. Every day is very very different. Every um, everything uh, going back to my point of who does what and at LinkedIn you said okay there's a team of financial planning and analysis it's a team of like I don't know 15 people right and here when you go to a startup of 250,000 employees there's no one in financial planning and analysis there's half a person doing that maybe right so it's not like oh take that to FPNA like what well, what is FPNA it doesn't exist here <laughs> you need to kind of like change your man- mindset and say okay the finance function is two people four people and this is how they do it they're all many, maybe generalists and they all do stuff at the beginning they're all doing a little bit of everything so you need to adapt a bit your style as well and even yourself you're no longer uh, very as I told you before you're not the covering this market and this line of business you're like you have a more a wider impact and therefore you need to wear different hats so you need to be very nimble and sometimes be like very hands-on on something and sometimes be super strategic and very hands-off so you have the full spectrum of of things to do 
So coming from a role which was really well defined into an unstructured space. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about your relationship with the executives and the founders. Yeah. It wasn't easy, especially at the beginning, because people who come from product or engineering backgrounds normally have very good understanding or normally not. They do have a very good understanding on what's a tech lead, what's a product manager, what's a QA, what's like th- these roles are, of course, well-defined in a product-driven organization. PyDrive had half of the team globally was engineering, right? So I was new to the role and the function didn't exist. So there wasn't business operations per se or strategy. So they were all asking me, what is business operations? So funnily enough, like the term doesn't even help, right? It doesn't It doesn't say I'm compliance. It doesn't say exactly what you do, so which is made my job a little bit difficult. So at the beginning, I spent some time like with them and they were all asking me, so what do you do? And I was ask, uh, answering these questions and always they were going back to, but why do you sit in marketing? Because your boss is a CMO. Well, she had this role at LinkedIn as a partner. So she decided to create this function here. I was like, okay, that sounds weird. So at the beginning, I got to earn my trust. I think after two, three months, I was I was there like with the leadership team. They're also like very much, there were a lot of like co-founders in the team already, in the leadership team. And they're, um, they come from a, very, from a background in, they're from Estonia. And they were very kind of like, they have different way of approaching uh, issues than me, right? They're, they're very, very direct, super direct. And I struggled with the culture a bit at the beginning. I worked with like, direct people in the Netherlands, but this is like uh, very different or Americans, but this was a complete new mindset I had to be in. The way they speak sometimes makes you feel like, oh, they're super angry. They're shouting at me. It's like, actually, no, that's how they speak. They're just being direct. They just don't take it the wrong way. I still remember like the first conversation I had like with uh, now a friend, he was running product marketing uh, and he was like talking to me. It's like, fuck, this guy hates me. Now I'm a friend with him, but he's like, he was super, super angry. So the way they speak in English and the way I speak in English was, wasn't always there. It's the second language for both of us. So at the beginning, the cultural differences were, were there, but I think at the end of the day, we, we got along. What was the project or moment where you felt like you've got the respect? I think like early on, like two weeks in, I got thrown into like, hey, there's a board meeting uh, happening and we need to show, it was like end of the year and we were supposed to share like, the plan for the following year. Like as it normally happens, it was like October, November timeframe and we had to present the plan for the following year. So I just threw myself in and created like the model for the following year without knowing SaaS at all. Like, I haven't worked in SaaS before. I didn't know what was a gross retention number or subscription monthly and annual or what do you mean? What's the sign up? What's the conversion rate? All these kind of things that SaaS companies look at. So I basically, I, I worked hard to create something that could bring some insights to the leadership team. So I say, okay, if we want to grow this much, these are the underlying drivers that need to happen. So I created like a driver tree model where I say, okay, you want this number of revenue? This is P times Q and P is this and Q is this and blah, blah, blah. So broken down the problem into smaller chunkable bits and presenting that with like some economics behind it was, I think, the first moment I started to get some respect. So you were hired to do business operations by people who didn't really know what business operation is like. So they have like this, who is this person? What is he doing? Why is he sending us presentation, asking us super intimate questions? Why is he in London? (laughs) (laughs) Why is he in London? Yeah. And then on the other hand, you are new to the role, new to the company, new to the industry, and you have to come up with something with a deliverable that has value. Like I can see the, I can see the, the abyss. Yeah. So what is business operations? What value can it give to companies? And then we'll maybe zoom out and speak about operations in general, but kind of like set, set the scene for, for your function and what you did. Yeah. I started thinking as an internal strategy team or trying to piggyback on my consulting background and say, okay, at the end of the day, 
we need to report to the board what we're going to do next year and how we're going to do it, how we're going to track it and risks and the kind of the classic example of a deck I could have created back in my consulting days, right? So I started thinking about a story. Like I like like decks as a stories and started the, the first thing I do, I write it in an email and say, okay, what's the story we're going to tell the board? Okay, we're growing like this, we hit this milestone, we're going to do this, that and that, and this is how we're going to do it, right? So I wrote down my story and I started to create the slides and the analysis behind it. And I guess business operations is a bit like like that. So it's leveraging data internally to come up with insights that drive the business forward. What was the hard part? When did it start being hard? Pydrive had a bunch of very capable uh, individual contributors that were working in their particular area. And they were specialists and they were very good on the data side, on the marketing side, product marketing side. But someone needs to optimize the system and not the subsystems, right? It's a, my boss, back in the day, she used to call it like that. Like, we're optimizing for subsystems, but nobody's looking at the system overall. The, the teams were super well executors on their own area. But some someone needed to tie everything back to the overall big picture. So that's kind of the role I was trying to play sometimes. And whenever things were not according to plan or whatever things were going ahead of plan, we needed to answer back the question, why? Like, why is it not good? Why is it good? I see a few problems or challenges in that situation is because you have a lot of the responsibility, but not a whole lot of the authority. Yes. So these are individual contributors who are doing their job and doing it well. Yes. And all of a sudden you have to like tell them to do it differently. Yes. <laughs> and doing it differently means also doing it, maybe maybe seeing some of the matrix deep. Now you're hitting the nail on the head, I think. it's At LinkedIn, we called it influencing without authority, right? It was very hard, especially being remote. I was in London and most of this team was in Tallinn. They all have been there for years measuring something. Right, measuring whatever metric. Walking towards optimizing some of these metrics for, for literally yeah. years. And you remote, they've never met you. They don't, you're the first business operations person in the company. So they don't necessarily understand your role. And all of a sudden, this Felix guy who speaks with an accent we have never heard before in our life, <laughs> I'm waking up in the morning and have emails for him telling me to do something differently. Yeah. I can see where the resistance might come from. Yes. And I guess like, I needed to bring people along, right? I had to handhold and I need to convince. It was a very much of a change management kind of thing. So we were speaking earlier about one degree of freedom, but it sounds like you had to sell your job. You had to build a relationship with the founding team yeah. and you had to build authority and base your authority with the people who were basically whose processes you were trying to optimize. What did it feel like when you met resistance? What did it look like? It didn't look very well. I was like, like, how do I make my point? Like, am I right as well? Like at the beginning, like I didn't know if what I was pushing for was the right solution either. Like that's also good to check, right? So if I wasn't right, I, I was kind of before I pushed for something, I wanted to make sure I was right. So I kind of like run the numbers or do some benchmarking, do some calls with experts and like give me a little bit of confidence first of what I'm pushing for is what I think is the, is the best thing for the business. And then second is, it's like a bit of a peeling the onion and going first with the people who you think are more likely to think like you and therefore become your partners, right? In this change management program. So this person I was telling you before, uh, running product marketing, uh, at the beginning he was like, I felt like he was my enemy. He was like shouting at me, but I got along with him so much that then I, he was my go-to person. It's like, look, I saw that, I don't know, Hotspot did this and like Servant Monkey did this and this other is that and whatever. Why don't we first like assess this in a small group and he, I got his ideas, my ideas and we, we got to a place where we were happy with the outcome. So he was then my kind of like ambassador with the local team or with others. And he was seen as someone very respectful in the company because he was there from the early days. So I bought myself an ally, a very strong ally. 
and then I bought another one and another one and then suddenly we're all going like on the same boat but um I think one on one time also made me change my answer as well I wasn't perfectly right at the beginning it was like yeah in the ballpark and then I got more into the specifics I got an understanding of what would the challenges be of that implementation what would people ask what would people say no to and adapting my speech to that made me I guess like more successful in the in the one to many forums it's a, some in startups everywhere you see it a lot sometimes it's more important who says it than what is being said yeah it's such a huge point and it takes a lot of humility to say actually maybe I'm not the right person to say that even though I am 100% right yeah it's a lesson I think you have to learn the hard way because this is how you understand the power dynamics in a startup what did it feel like when things were starting to you know break apart I guess like there are a couple of factors like maybe I spend a lot of time trying to build that buying with the individual contributors or the peers and their teams like and not as much time understanding for instance the board or the executive team who have very strong opinions on the issue we're trying to tackle at the time so I go to a place where everyone in that task force was very happy with the output of that task force. Uh, we ended up presenting that to the leadership team, went to the board and everything. But at the end of the day, my probably my learning was that I didn't do that same effort of getting everyone in agreement with the people above as I did with the people like peer and below. Right? I was very much worried about the analysts thinking, oh, this guy is measuring conversion the wrong way than what the board member thought. An oversight, clearly, like now in hindsight looks stupid, but I missed that. And before embarking on this project, I actually thought that the that the board member, this board member had a real genuine question about what had happened, but actually he had an opinion already, which I didn't ask about. I didn't kind of like get an understanding of. So I guess I, even though my work, I was happy with the end product, I never kind of like answered or went back to the or, or made the board member click with that. And then also like my boss started to have disagreements with how things were handled. Um, and I guess we, we, we decided to leave. And uh, that was like when things decided like, not to fall apart. It was like, I don't agree with the way to how to run this. And we, 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 we I don't know, we broke apart. I don't know how to say it. Yeah. So the the idea of knowing what's important to your managers as a manager, you already knew that. Yeah. So you understood that and you valued that in your in your directs. But then changing the environments, changing the way you communicate with your decision makers, with the executives, also changed your ability or affected your ability to uh, to implement that learning. So you already knew that. This is yeah. not a new lesson. Yeah, yeah. Right? But when you take into consideration time, that is the most valuable resource in startups, time, not yeah. money, not, not it's time. And when you realize that, that your core role, in order to start doing business operations, you had to get, you had to prove who you are, you had to get buying internally, up and down and sideways. I mean, there's only so much you can achieve in that space of time. Yeah. And when you're running so fast, you're bound to miss out on things you already know. Yeah. Probably painful, like, Oh, I know that. I already know that. Like, mm. I guess, like in at, at LinkedIn, like it was all very structured, and whenever there was projects or decisions or whatever, I always felt like if I had the agreement of my manager, and um, and that's as far as I could, I should go above to like because she would do the job above from from her, right? When you go into startups, when there's like a different dynamic, there's a board, there's a VC, there's you need to pour money into this and you're losing money or you're growing or whatever. There's like a different kind of like set of uh, kind of like spices in that food that you haven't tried before. That was the first time I was in a, such a small company where I didn't know exactly who was making the decision. And I learned that the, the, the wrong way, right? I thought that the decisions were made like what I recommended, what my manager said, like, let's go. But there was like a superpower someone had somewhere that said, no, not now. I wish I had learned that the, the other way, but I realized that the super hand that came after the fact, 
I never planned for that. How would you advise people to prepare for such scenarios in, the, in, the, in their environment? I don't want to, like maybe it was one particular set of individuals or one type of board or one type of VC. I don't know how, like I, I have a few startups uh, experience, but I don't have like, enough, enough sample to, to generalize. But I would say like ask, ask questions and say, what are we going to do with this, the output of this? This is, is my final decision, my final recommendation, and this needs to go somewhere else to get approved. Who holds the decision power of this? Is it me? Is it my boss? Or is it the board? And then whoever that person ends up being, like ask what, what they would like to get out of this like project or whatever, because probably I wasn't in the same line of thought as this person. You've left the dream job and the best position you've ever been in professionally to take a big risk with a startup. You've done some things right, some things wrong, but it didn't end the way you wanted. It wasn't the outcome you planned on. Yeah. Where were you physically, mentally, financially at that point in time? Good question. I was uh, very, very stressed. Um, so I thought I had done a big mistake um, for some days. And for some days I thought, no, maybe this was the right thing. Financially, I was also very worried. And luckily, I have a network of ex-consultants, of ex-people at Bain. I started to talk to a lot of them. Because like, hey, guys, if there's any work that I could do or like on the side. So I started to get connected in ex-consultants, uh, freelancers. So I, I had like lined up a few projects uh, in case this fall apart uh, a month in advance. I had something already planned. So financially, that gave me the... Because I say, okay, I have a plan B. And personally, I was kind of like half and half. Like This was very an intense year. I learned a lot. But other part of me was like, why did you leave LinkedIn? You should have stayed. So I was torn. I was very much torn. I always... And also, London for me is a city that showed me a lot of opportunities, a lot of stuff. But at the same time, I was like... What am I doing in London now without a job? I came for a job. I don't have that job anymore. My kids are at school. Should I stay? Should I go? I don't know. So I started to balance everything out and it was super stressful in short. And for the first time in my career, I I started to fear the fact of having a job, right? So that's something that maybe sounds stupid for other people but I was lucky in my previous jobs that I never felt that I could lose my job I am lucky I know that some people may be in a different position but I was always like I left Ben because I wanted I left LinkedIn because I wanted a new challenge I left my consulting background because I wanted to do an MBA it was always my decision my, I had the power but for the first time I was like feeling that my work wasn't going wasn't getting cutting through it's like are these guys going to fire me? Are they like, my boss is maybe leaves and what am I going to do? They hired someone who had a very similar title than me, who was, was an ex-friend uh, ex of the, one of the CEOs in New York, close to one of the CEOs. It's like, I started to join the dots and say, wait, there's another guy who has my same title. He reports into one of the CEOs. My boss maybe is not here in a month. I need to start thinking about the plan B. So that was the worst time. Like two months before I left, when I made that connection, uh, that I decided like maybe I should plan B or, or more than plan B. My plan A should be should be leave. Wow. That's harsh. But again, I learned. I learned a lot. I learned how to read people, how to... Uh, I trust my feelings. I trust my gut. Like at the beginning, I felt like there was something in there that I couldn't connect with one of the members of the leadership team. And that ended up being what stopped me from progressing and uh, moving forward. So you ask me a lot, like advice for others, like trust your guts. Like my gut was telling me, this is never going to work with this individual. Try to work it, try to work it, but it doesn't go through. Maybe you're not the right fit for that company and that's okay. I hear your story and I don't consider it a failure, but you experienced it as a failure in real time. Maybe I've done a mistake. I I need to provide for da 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 da. And but no, that's not a failure. It's if you said about respecting the journey, then then this is the journey. Yeah, this is the journey. 
I want to lighten the mood a little bit. And hmm. I heard a myth about you a few years ago. I don't know if it's true or not. <laughs> but yeah, I think it speaks to your character a little bit. Is it true that when you first moved to London, you did stand-up comedy to improve your English? Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, who, who's your source? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I did. Going back to the consulting times, um, you get a lot of feedback all the time. All the time. And full transparency, when I applied for Bain, the, uh, I was in business school. There was, uh, I think it was over 160 people who applied for a, a position, right? So you get down to the first interview, I think we were 70. Second interview, like, I don't know, like 25 or 30. And then we were all waiting to hear by end of day on a, on a, on a Friday. And I hear there's five people who get offers. And I still don't hear, don't hear, don't hear anything back. And they call me like the last minute they could possibly call me, which was the the time and the deadline. And they said, we really liked you. There's someone in the team who thinks your English is not good enough. It's like, fuck. <laughs> so you give me a good news and a bad news. Uh, I, and then I started doubting a lot about my English, of course. Like that made you my my English worse, of course, overnight or in a second. And they said, but the guys who liked you think that you could be very good. So we want to put you in front of uh, the partner who runs recruiting globally for Bain. And uh, you need to come to London to see her. It's like, okay. And in my head, I had the next week, uh, when you're doing MBA, you're also very stressed. I had lost like 10 kilos. I was stressed because I had a big debt. Uh, I was... Argentinian pesos in euros don't translate very well normally. So I was like spending all my savings and debt and personal and family loans on my MBA betting for something. And now that bet was reliant on me speaking English, for fuck's sake. So I was super stressed and I had all interviews every day and they told me, and I was thinking the only day I cannot make it to London was on Wednesday. And she tells me, the recruiter tells me, the only day that she can meet you, Wednesday, of course. <laughs> of course. So um, I had to go to London for the day. But that day I had like interviews with McKinsey in the morning and with another company in the afternoon. <laughs> so I woke up like at 5.30, went to McKinsey interviews at 8 a.m. I took a train from Fontainebleau to Paris, to Paris, to London, whatever. I got to 3.30 interview. Luckily, the time difference was... Uh, 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 um, helping me work, working me out. I got a final interview and I and I got the role, but I, that my confidence was was destroyed in that sense. So when I got into Bain the first day, I was all the time like, "Oh, these guys all speak great English. It's full of Americans, Canadians, British, or even like French people were perfect at English." It's like, "Fuck, I'm the worst." And then I started to get on the projects, and sometimes there was some commentary around my English. Like always, like when you write your tone or when you say this or whatever, when you're speaking with very senior people and sometimes speaking about very strategic things, like, I don't know, dismissals or firings or whatever, the tone is critical. And I, to be honest, I wasn't that great with my English back then, probably, and still aren't, but I was worse then. So at some point I think I need a place to start talking, you know, in, a, in English where nobody's judging me. <laughs> And I can just be myself and, I don't know, make stupid jokes. And I did two courses of comedy, uh, stand-up comedy, to, to do that. <laughs> Long story, but yeah, that's you're right. So you used to actually go on stage to yeah. like, tell jokes? Yes. <laughs> but it's it's more the process. Like It was like an eight-week course where you go and you meet with other people and you work on your material and you work on techniques and... You learn from a comedian or from someone running the, the the workshop, and it was pretty pretty good. It was it was also fun. Felix, um, this has been a true pleasure. I've learned so much, and I've been waiting to have this conversation with you for I don't know how long. But <laughs> timing is everything. Thank you so so much for your insights, and thanks for having me here. It's been our utmost pleasure. Thank you, Tal.
A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.